1: I'm Arielle Levy, and this is Broken, Jeffrey Epstein. As we've been reporting the story of Jeffrey Epstein's life, many of you have wondered about his death. Epstein was found unresponsive at the Metropolitan Correctional Center in Manhattan, August 10th, 2019. He was awaiting trial at the time. His death was ruled a suicide, but that hasn't stopped the questions surrounding it. So this week, for our season finale, a special report. The jail where he spent his final days. Here's our executive producer, Adam Davidson. If you're listening to
2: this show, I'm going to go ahead and assume that you know that Jeffrey Epstein was found dead back in August while he was waiting for his upcoming trial. You also know that there are a lot of questions about that death. So here's what we know with some degree of certainty. He was found at around 6.30 a.m. with a ligature, sort of a noose, made of torn strips from his bedsheet tied around his neck, the other end tied to the top of a bunk bed. He had been removed from suicide watch 11 days before. The guards assigned to his tier were overworked and not following protocol. In fact, the night of his death, there were only 18 guards on duty with 750 inmates. The two guards assigned to Epstein's tier reportedly falsified records and were placed on administrative leave. New York City's chief medical examiner ruled that Epstein did kill himself. But Mark Epstein, Jeffrey's brother, hired Michael Bodden, a forensic pathologist, to observe the initial autopsy. And last week, Bodden gave an interview about his independent study and cast doubt on the medical examiner's report. Our special correspondent, Julie K. Brown, talked with Bodden last week.
3: Dr. Baden, he's a former New York City medical examiner, and he also is a very noted forensic pathologist who has handled some of the world's most famous cases, including uh, working with the commission on the death of John F. Kennedy. So he has done probably about 20,000 autopsies and is very experienced in these kinds of cases. He recently, you know, went over everything that he was able to view, including some photographs, and has come to the conclusion that Mr. Epstein's injuries were more akin to murder or strangulation than they were to him committing suicide.
2: Now, of course, the current medical examiner of New York City, Dr. Barbara Solomon, says, no, no, it was suicide. So how do we make sense of this? I mean, you and I aren't pathologists, and here we have two well-regarded pathologists coming to very different conclusions.
3: Well, I think it's very significant that you have a a forensic pathologist as well regarded as Dr. Bodden coming to a a very uh, starkly different analysis of what happened to Mr. Epstein My experience with him, I dealt with him on a couple of different cases during my career, especially involving prison deaths, is that he's very thorough and, you know, he isn't one of those people that comes to these kinds of conclusions lightly. I mean, he does his homework.
2: And just to be clear, Baden's conclusions are that someone strangled him, but obviously— That could be someone murdered him against Epstein's will or someone was hired by Epstein to kill him.
3: Yeah, and he's been careful with how he frames it. He's saying that the injuries are more in keeping with homicidal strangulation. He is not saying this was a homicide. He's saying these injuries are questionable. And I do think that he raises a very important point in that by by concluding that it's a suicide, it closes the door on any further investigation into exactly how he died.
2: So Dr. Bodden was hired by Mark Epstein, Jeffrey Epstein's brother. Does that taint his view in some way?
3: Well, some people would call Dr. Bodden these days a medical examiner for hire. Uh, Certainly there are plenty of experts and forensic pathologists who do this work. He has a very good reputation. It sounds to me, based on what Dr. Bodden told me, there's some question there as to exactly how Mr. Epstein died. This has to be looked at in the whole sphere of what happened that day. We need to talk to people who worked in that prison. We need to talk to the other inmates who were in that wing when it happened. We need to look at more video. We need to understand that these injuries rarely occur when someone hangs themselves. What about that ligature, the specific instrument that he allegedly used to commit suicide? Where is that ligature? We don't even know if they saved it. Did they swab it for DNA? You know, it doesn't matter what side of this you are on, whether you think he committed suicide or whether he was murdered. These questions. That Dr. Bodden has raised are all very, very important questions that we don't know the answer to. And his point is that we need to know the answers to this before we close the book and say he committed suicide.
2: So did Epstein kill himself Was he killed? And more to the point, how was the most famous prisoner in America able to die in a federal jail in lower Manhattan specifically designed to house and keep safe high-value detainees? This is, after all, where Mexican cartel leader El Chapo Guzman was held, where Ramzi Youssef, the World Trade Center bomber, was held. How the hell did this happen? Let's take you inside the Metropolitan Correctional Center, that jail in Manhattan known as MCC, shortly after Epstein died.
0: When I got there, like, everything was really, like, just going haywire. And I actually had heard about it, and I was like, there go MCC again. Larry Williams
2: was transferred into MCC two days after Jeffrey Epstein died. Williams has actually been an inmate at MCC three separate times over the last 17 years. He said that all the prisoners at MCC were, like all of America, talking about Epstein's death, trying to figure out what had happened. Williams noted that in the days afterwards, there were just a lot more guards and official-looking visitors than usual.
0: Everybody's running in there and they're trying to cover each other.
2: Larry said the prisoners, again, just like the rest of us, have been arguing over this issue. Was Epstein killed or did he kill himself? Although, Larry says, far more prisoners at MCC believe that Epstein was killed by guards. But for Larry, that's not really the question. If Epstein was murdered, he was killed because the jail is so poorly run that it's possible to kill someone easily. If he committed suicide, he did so because the jail is so awful that it crushes people and doesn't observe them well enough to prevent them from killing themselves. Larry himself was close to suicide when he was first locked up there.
0: Either way you look at it, I feel the institution did it. Whether or not he killed himself, Epstein, or whatever the case may be, the jail still killed him.
2: I grew up in Manhattan, born just shortly before the MCC was built, and I've walked by it or driven by it tons of times. I would always look in that direction because it happens to be right next to the building where I got married. I've noticed it, but I've never known what it was. And that's exactly the point of its design.
4: It actually has the same casting on the outside as the high school <laughs> that you see as you cross over the Manhattan Bridge. But it's, it's just it's nestled in the shadow of the federal courthouse. Like if you look closely, you can see barbed wire, but only from a certain angle.
2: Emily Saul covers the courts for the New York Post and has reported on several inmates of MCC. She's never gone inside. No reporters, as far as we've been able to find out, have ever been allowed inside. But she's heard about what life is like in there from prisoners she's interviewed, and from their lawyers, and from what has become public from civil court cases.
4: A complaint we constantly hear about the MCC is a vermin infestation, rats and mice, mold on the ceilings, air that burns your throat, water that burns your throat.
2: MCC is 12 stories high, a big, squat, brown building. It has 10 prison units, and some are worse than others.
4: Conditions vary widely throughout the prison, depending on what wing you're in. In 10 South, you are subject to what groups like Amnesty International have considered to basically be inhumane and torturous conditions.
2: So it turns out, if you're a reporter covering the courts for the New York Post, you get a lot of letters and calls and emails from lawyers and inmates talking about how they have been wronged in some way. But Emily says that over time... She's come to trust the accounts of MCC.
4: I mean, a single account like this, you could dismiss, but this is habitual. We see it over and over and over again in conjunction with almost each and every case. You see lawyers filing on behalf of their clients because this is a pretrial facility and these people are still presumed innocent and they're living in absolute squalor.
2: They're presumed innocent because all of these people are waiting for their trials. They've been indicted, but not yet convicted. I personally find it strange that there's this giant building in Manhattan, the very center of American media and news, and we only pay attention to this very difficult, very odd place when someone famous goes in. El Chapo and Youssef, Bernie Madoff was there for a while, Paul Manafort, John Gotti... But every day for nearly 45 years, the place is filled with inmates who are not famous and are typical of most jails and prisons in the country. They're minority, poor, arrested not on violent crimes, but on drug charges. That's what brought Larry Williams there. He eventually pled guilty to dealing crack cocaine and is actually now out and pursuing his college degree. But over the years that he was on trial, he got to know MCC quite well.
0: It smells a mix between death and rot.
2: All the things that Emily has heard about the prison, Larry says they're all true, especially the rats.
0: Believe it or not, a lot of people don't know how they're kind of like acrobats and they like climb on things and some of them can't even jump. Wow, so you'll see them running like... You a- can see them running across like a pipe on top of the ceiling as well. It's almost like... We don't belong there, and the rats or the roaches are actually the residents there. There's an infestation of rats and roaches, I mean, big cockroaches, and... Like the big water bugs. The big water bugs, yeah.
2: The cells are small and cramped. Designed for one person, they now hold two. Two beds, two small desks, tiny lockers, and a toilet. Larry Williams said you could barely pace around the room if you were alone, but if there's another person there, you really can't walk around at all. So picture Jeffrey Epstein's last day of freedom. He is on his private jet coming from his mansion in Paris. He lands in New Jersey, expected to be driven to his Upper East Side mansion. His mansion, by the way, has been estimated to be worth somewhere between 50 and 80 million dollars, which in inflation-adjusted terms is almost as much money as it costs to build the entire MCC, which houses nearly 800 inmates. So he's arrested, and then he gets to MCC with its rats and its roaches and the mold on the ceiling and the mold in the water, it had to be an adjustment.
5: It's huge. It's a huge physical adjustment. It's a huge mental adjustment.
2: That's Catherine Lineweaver. Weaver. She's retired now, but she was the warden of MCC in 2013 and 2014. And she says for anybody, their first time locked up is one of the most traumatic experiences anybody could imagine.
5: You're not picking what you're going to eat. You're not picking what time you're going to eat. You're not picking who your doctor's going to be. You're not picking whether you can get a second opinion from another doctor. There's somebody telling you when to get up and somebody telling you when to go to bed. You're waiting in line for a telephone. You're waiting in line to get your medicine. You're waiting in line all day long for something. I could go on and on with the different things that change in your life that you no longer have control of, that you took for granted your whole life.
2: Lina Weaver told me a surprising statistic. Suicide rates in jails, those are the places people are held before they are convicted, are seven times higher than suicide rates in prisons, the places you go once you've been convicted and sentenced. Now, this is surprising because people spend far more time in prison than in jail. And when they are in jail, they at least have the possibility of being found innocent and going home. But jails, and it seems especially the jail that is MCC, are incredibly traumatic places. That is where your life is first thrown into the turmoil of arrest, where you live with this profound uncertainty. And also, jails tend to not have the same rich array of services that some prisons have—education, work, things you can do to take your mind off your conditions. And it is not just the smell and the roaches and the rats, though those things are awful. Although, Lina Weaver says that was not true when she was in charge—
5: I can tell you that we had no more of a roach or a rodent problem than any other business or entity in New York City. In the entire time I was there, I did not see one rat, one mouse. We did have several occasions of sewage backups, but we immediately cleaned them up. You have a lot of people flushing a lot of things down toilets there that shouldn't necessarily be flushed down toilets. And that causes a backup.
2: It seems possible—in fact, Larry Williams said it himself—that things have become far worse since Lina Weaver has left her position, though it is hard to reconcile her rosier view of the place with the fact that so many prisoners and lawyers over so many years have made the same specific complaints—rats, roaches, sewage, mold, indifferent staff. For Lina Weaver, though, None of those conditions are necessary to explain Epstein's death.
5: He is a classic type of inmate that would commit suicide. He was 66 years old, so he was going to do the rest of what remained of his life in prison. He was looking at a horrendous trial that was going to drag many people through some pretty nasty stuff. He was looking at a life of isolation because of the type of crime he committed. He is on the lower chain of the inmate hierarchy because inmates have daughters, inmates have wives, inmates have grandchildren. A pedophile is not someone they particularly respect. And to be real honest, someone who has lived a lifestyle of committing those types of crimes Is more likely to take what I call the chicken's way out rather than face their justice.
2: All staff at MCC go through training to help them spot inmates who may be suicidal, even employees like food service workers and teachers. And every employee has the ability to place an inmate on a suicide watch. But the signs you're looking for, they can be really small things.
5: Inmates may begin just giving away items to other inmates, and you may or may not be aware of it. They may give away some of their commissary, and one staff may think, well, he probably owes a gambling debt, so he's given away his, you know, week's supply of potato chips, where in fact, the inmate may think, I'm going to kill myself. I'm not going to need these potato chips.
2: Now, most inmates, Lina Weaver told me, don't have wills to rewrite. Epstein did, and two days before he died, he rewrote his will. He also deposited money in the commissary accounts of lots of prisoners, and he had tried before on July 23rd. Epstein allegedly tried to kill himself for the first time. He was put on suicide watch. Lina Weaver said suicide watch makes a difficult jail experience far, far worse.
5: They're given a suicide smock uh, or blanket that's made out of a material that cannot be torn up and used for such a device. When we give inmates something to eat with, we don't give them silverware. We give them things called sporks. But it's made out of material that if you try to melt it down, it will not melt and sharpen.
2: When you're on suicide watch, you have these continuous evaluations with a psychologist And you are monitored very closely.
5: You've got somebody sitting and staring at you through a window about two feet away at absolutely every move you make, whether it's going to the bathroom or using the shower or what other personal things you might be doing. And most people don't like that.
2: Much has been made of the fact that Epstein was taken off suicide watch just six days after his initial attempt. But Lina Weaver and the Bureau of Prisons told us that this is normal. Suicide Watch is supposed to be a very short-term intervention, three to five days typically. And Lina Weaver says that makes sense. Most people who try to kill themselves in prison do so at the peak of some psychological breakdown. And so those three to five days of constant observation, controlled movement— allow the crisis to pass.
5: And so they start thinking about, well, you know, the suicide thing's not all it's cracked up to be. Most people have the endorphins that fight or flight, self-protection. Your body is telling itself you don't harm your own body. That is part of our innate nuclear makeup. So all of this, through a little bit of time, calms them down. Their sessions every few hours with a psychologist calms them down. So they come off a suicide
2: watch. One interesting fact, the people monitoring folks on suicide watch are not medical professionals. They're prison guards often assisted by inmates.
5: Low security designated inmates that are trained specifically for observation.
2: Larry Williams had this job for a time.
0: I don't know if it's because staffing reasons or whatever the case may be. They're supposed to train you, which they really don't train you that well. But they train a prisoner, and what happens is the suicide companion has to log down what goes on every 15 minutes in a book. When you're the suicide watch companion, you're just sitting there staring at them? What I would do is I would try to engage them and talk to them and try to Get them to understand that it's not worth it and that people feel the way they feel and that people actually moved on. Because
2: you You but, were thinking of killing yourself earlier in your incarceration.
0: Right, right. So it's almost like it's almost like self-healing as well, because as I'm talking to this individual that's contemplating or have tried to kill himself, I'm also telling myself that it's not worth it and that this a past. But the mental pressure that happens in that pretrial facility because they disconnect you from your family and they make it rough for you and your family to be able to speak to each other. So all this stuff is like a perfect makeup to make you give up. To want
2: to kill yourself. Absolutely. How MCC became the dark place where Epstein died in Julie K. Brown's theory of his death, next.
0: The following interview is being videotaped at the Dade County Public Safety Department, Miami, Dade County, Florida. And sir, would you identify yourself? My
6: name is Robert
0: F. III. In
2: 1976, a man in Florida tells a cop he has a confession to make.
6: Arriving in Miami, I proceeded to do certain things that I considered to be necessary in the crime that I planned to
2: commit.
6: I was looking for a hitchhiker,
2: potential victim. But instead of becoming his victim, I became his confidant. One of the people closest to him, as he recounted and was tried for his horrific crimes. From Orbit Media and Sony Music Entertainment, listen to My Friend the Serial Killer. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts to binge all episodes now or listen weekly wherever you get your podcasts. MCC was not always like this. Federal jails in general used to be much nicer places to be incarcerated, so much better that there were jokes about it.
5: Club Fed. I remember some prisons that had, back in the day, they had a bowling alley or a little miniature putt-putt golf.
2: Some federal prisons even had tennis. It was tennis in a place where you were told when to get up, when to eat, what to eat, when to sleep, when to go to the bathroom, but still, tennis— In 1970, there were about 20,000 inmates in Bureau of Prison facilities. Today, when the population of the United States is about a third bigger, there are nearly 10 times as many prisoners in Bureau of Prison lockups. And if you're thinking that's because there is now 10 times as much crime, you're definitely wrong. So what we now
6: know is that the number of people we put in prison is largely a political decision, largely, you know, divorced from the crime rate.
2: That's Heather Ann Thompson. She's a historian at the University of Michigan who specializes in crime and punishment in America. She says there is this one event in 1971 that totally transformed how Americans think about prison.
6: Attica. In September of 1971, about 1,300 men who were locked in an upstate New York maximum security facility erupted.
2: They were protesting conditions of the prison. They wanted better living conditions, they wanted better educational programs, and they wanted to be compensated more reliably for the work they did. The prisoners took over the whole jail. They took over that facility in protest
6: of the conditions inside, incidentally protesting conditions that were terrible, but, you know, nowhere near even as bad as they've become in places like MCC today. And for four days and four nights, they negotiated with state officials to improve conditions in that facility. And then suddenly things went terribly wrong when the state of New York decides to storm that prison and retake it by force, and it was a massacre.
2: When the uprising started, on the first day, public sympathy was with the prisoners.
6: Prior to the Attica uprising, uh, the vast majority of Americans polled actually believed that you know prisoners had basic human rights. That in fact you know we're turning against the death penalty. Uh, we were actually in a moment of decarceration, thinking that we should go more towards community corrections. And indeed, when Attica begins, which was a real uprising for better conditions on the inside, uh, the sympathy was largely with. The men inside.
2: But by the end of the standoff, public views of prisoners in Attica, and as it turns out, public views of prisoners everywhere, had changed dramatically.
6: We now know that, in fact, the state of New York had very little intention of settling in any other way than by force. But at the time, it was a real shock, I think, to those inside. Uh, Hostages and prisoners alike were uh, shot to death by trooper bullets. And the reason for that is that the assault force came in with armed with personal weapons, state-issue weapons, and basically for 15 minutes were firing with absolute impunity on a group of people, none of whom had firearms. There was 128 people shot, some of them six and seven times. And then those men were tortured for days and for weeks. And yet, the American people were told that that had not happened at all and that, in fact, the prisoners had committed all that trauma.
2: It's an amazing story, one that Heather Ann Thompson wrote about in her book Blood in the Water, which won the Pulitzer Prize and tells the story in remarkable detail.
6: After Attica, when the state storms the prison, state officials tell the American people something that absolutely was a lie, that did not happen. And that was that the prisoners had actually killed the hostages inside, that the violence that had happened at Attica when it ended was all down to the prisoners.
2: But we only know this now. At the time, the official story was published everywhere.
6: And it really notably soured a generation of Americans on civil rights and prisoner rights.
2: I grew up in the 1970s in a fairly left-wing home, a home generally positively disposed to human rights and prisoner rights. Yet when I hear the word Attica, somehow the message that got through to me as a little kid was... Attica is the place where very scary, dangerous prisoners killed a lot of people. And Attica also made an impression on politicians. They came to see that being tough on crime, tough on prisoners, was becoming extremely popular. Nelson Rockefeller was governor of New York during the Attica riots. He oversaw what we now see as a tragic abuse of force by police under his ultimate command. But he was part of the effort to say, no, this wasn't police, this was prisoners, bad, bad prisoners. And he, Nelson Rockefeller, is going to be really tough on crime and particularly tough on a specific kind of crime.
6: His so-called Rockefeller drug laws are proposed on the wake of Attica in 1973 and after 1973 they're just added to in every subsequent administration whether it's Republican or Democrat. We get an increase in death penalty cases, life sentence cases and all of these related to that next
2: major punitive wave which was the drug war. And, as Nelson Rockefeller found in the 1970s, politicians in the 1980s and 90s found that a tough-on-crime message did well with voters. In perhaps the most crucial moment, Congress empowered the United States Sentencing Commission, a group of judges and criminologists whose job was to bring order to sentences. Judges around the country had discretion, and you would find that prisoners might receive a one-year sentence for a crime in one part of the country and a 40-year sentence in another part of the country. They wanted to bring uniformity to the whole system, but there's this public outcry about one particular crime.
0: Crack wars were ravaging the country, and crack was looked at as just a more devastating drug. So what the Sentencing Commission did is they treated crack 100 times worse than regular powder cocaine. So in other words, your sentence would be literally 100 times worse than if you got convicted for the same amount of powder cocaine.
2: Paul Pelletier was a career prosecutor in the Department of Justice, largely in Miami, and he spent a lot of time prosecuting cocaine importers. Now, I remember the 1980s. I was in high school in Manhattan, and while I never did cocaine, I knew it was around. Most of my close friends had done cocaine. Cocaine was fairly ubiquitous. There were stories about cocaine all over Studio 54, At Saturday Night Live, it was just part of New York life, and nobody I knew was worried about getting arrested, even though we knew that at that same time, on that same island of Manhattan, just north of 110th Street up in Harlem, young, poor black kids were getting arrested en masse for dealing a different form of cocaine, crack. But the 1980s were not the end of the increased tough-on-crime approach. Now, something that's come up in the current presidential campaign is the 1994 crime bill that Bill Clinton pushed through, in part, he says, because Joe Biden encouraged him to. Bill Clinton, a Democrat famous for taking at least some issues away from Republicans, called himself tough on crime, or specifically saying, no one can say, I'm soft on crime. The 1994 law increased the number of police in the country, stiffened sentences for many offenders. It also increased the penalty for using drugs for ex-offenders out on parole. It created worse conditions for prisoners by making education programs much harder to come by.
6: The Clinton crime bill is so significant because essentially it took what we had already been doing and escalated it dramatically. That is to say, take crimes that had already been on the books and make them much more illegal, give them much longer sentences, make it much harder to ever get out of prison. And the upshot of that was the most dramatic spike in incarceration in any one decade.
2: So each decade... Politicians are creating the conditions for more people to be arrested with stiffer sentences. And that means more people in more jails. It was expensive.
1: And by the early 2000s, politicians started to realize we cannot afford it. We simply cannot afford to continue to put all of that money into incarceration.
2: That's Christine Tartaro, a professor of criminal justice at Stockton University. And she's talking about a fairly obvious problem. Public opinion about prisoners is worse and worse and worse, which means politicians want to spend less money on prisons, yet at the same time, politicians are getting tough on crime, so there are more and more people going to those prisons.
1: Just in the past two years, we have had a tremendous amount of cuts to federal corrections, and those cuts seems to have had a direct impact on the MCC, where Epstein was staying. They had a 12% cut in their budget, and the result was staffing shortages and then having to rely on excessive overtime for people.
2: MCC has been overburdened almost from its start in 1975, but the last few years have been particularly brutal. Far too few guards and other staff people to manage a prison this large and this crowded. And there's something else we need to talk about now, and I hate to get on too much of a soapbox, but... It is simply fact that since Attica, nearly all of the changes in who we prosecute, how long we sentence them, how we treat them in prison has wildly, disproportionately impacted poor and minority populations. There was a time, a brief time, in the late 80s and early 90s when there was an aggressive prosecution of white-collar crime, particularly around the savings and loan scandals, But as someone who has covered financial crime for many years, I can say with assurance that there is nobody who thinks we're over-prosecuting wealthy white people and white-collar crime in general. Just remember, the MCC in Lower Manhattan is just a short walk from Wall Street.
0: I mean, at the end of the day, in New York, you would think they would have entire wings of federal detention centers— filled with white-collar defendants. That's what you would expect.
2: That's Paul Pelletier, and this is something Paul and I have been talking about for years. In fact, our mutual friend Jesse Isinger wrote a wonderful book called The Chicken Shit Club that explains precisely why there are so few wealthy white people in federal prison. New York City, Manhattan, specifically Lower Manhattan, is rather famously the financial center of the U.S. economy, one of the key financial nodes in the global financial infrastructure. And anyone who spends any time looking into it knows that while there's plenty of legal stuff going on, there's a lot of economic crime happening. There's... Money laundering, in fact, money laundering is a central pillar of New York's real estate market. There's any number of other schemes, and they are very rarely prosecuted. I think it's intuitively obvious, We most of us know this, that if you are a young minority person who's dealing drugs, you have a high possibility of arrest. But if you are a wealthy defendant who is committing economic crime, you are almost certainly free and doing your crimes with something close to impunity. That jail should
0: be full of them. And why aren't they? Because leadership in the Department of Justice has failed.
2: We cannot emphasize this enough. Jeffrey Epstein was not arrested for white-collar crimes. He was arrested for sexually abusing minors, often violently. These are awful crimes. Yet He embodies something so many people find wrong in our judicial system. When he pleaded guilty the first time, back in 2008, he was treated truly as gently as the judicial system can treat anybody. He was given a short sentence, offered an entire wing of a prison for himself, and, and this fact will never stop being shocking, he was allowed to leave prison six days a week for up to 12 hours a day where he, among other things, seems to have continued to have sex with young women. Then he's arrested a second time, now with a huge public outcry about that past leniency, and he was treated in a way that very few rich people are ever treated in our system, but the way countless poor and minority defendants are. He was housed in a grim jail without possibility of bail. So, did Epstein kill himself? Was he killed by powerful people who wanted him silenced? Normally, it's fairly easy to disprove conspiracy theories, but this one is not so simple. Could he, as the New York medical examiner says, have killed himself? Yes, that seems very possible. Could someone have bribed a guard or another prisoner or some combination of guards and prisoners to murder him? Right now, we don't have any evidence proving that happened, but it is very hard to entirely rule that out. Just last year, a guard at MCC was arrested and charged with taking more than $45,000 to provide an inmate with cell phones and alcohol. Julie K. Brown, our senior correspondent and the Miami Herald reporter who has covered Epstein most diligently, has her own theory.
3: I've never thought that this was Jeffrey Epstein figuring out how to tie a ligature and how to, on his own, hang himself. He has, for the better part of his life, uh, had other people doing things for him. You know, I don't think he probably even tied his shoes without having a butler standing there with him. So, I have always felt that while he may have wanted to commit suicide, he probably had help in that effort. I think that there are answers somewhere in that prison where people hadn't seen something. We just don't know what those answers are.
2: As we've learned in this season of Broken, Jeffrey Epstein was a man who constantly sought ways of thwarting the system, corrupting others, and restructuring the rules to benefit himself. Julie's theory is so compelling because it precisely maps with who this man was. If he had decided to kill himself, would he have left it to chance, hoping for a little window in which the guards fell asleep, or would he have used his wealth to corrupt others, to stack the deck so that he could achieve what he wanted, and get someone else to do the hard work of breaking his own neck? There are multiple investigations into his death. We may, hopefully, one day have a definitive answer.
1: Adam Davidson is the executive producer of Broken, Jeffrey Epstein. Our show is produced by three uncanny four productions. Our senior producers are TJ Raphael and Krista Ripple. Dan Bobkoff is our showrunner. Production help this week from Jennifer Siegel, Lena Richards, and Jack Panyard. Gene Montavlo Lucar is our engineer, and Casey Holford composed the theme. Benjamin Kalin is our fact checker. Our special correspondent and executive producer is Julie K. Brown. Our other executive producers are Adam Davidson, Laura Mayer, Adam McKay, and Kevin Messick. What do you want to hear us cover in season two? Share your thoughts, your questions, and comments by emailing broken at 3uncanny4.com. Share your thoughts on Twitter with the hashtag broken, Jeffrey Epstein. For Broken, I'm Arielle Levy.